John chapter 8, a very familiar passage for many of you. I want to read the text before we begin. If you got your Bible, uh, you can just follow along. The title of today's message here, Dropping Stones. Verse 1, and they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they also continued to ask him, and he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. At just 18 years old, Annie Lobert, she headed for downtown Las Vegas, looking for fame and fortune and fun times. The glitz and the glamour of the casinos attracted Annie to start a waitressing job on the strip of Sin City. The tip she was getting was not enough to make ends meet, and so a friend convinced her that an easy way to make fast money was to start stripping at a nightclub. It was there among the buzzed bar patrons that Annie met the man who would become her pimp. The man not only paid Annie generously while she danced for him, but he promised her that she could make ten times more as a high-end call girl. Thus began Annie's sordid 16-year career as a woman of the night. Her pimp was right. Annie did make thousands of dollars every week, but the hooker lifestyle took a tremendous toll on her soul. She felt empty, unloved, ashamed, and at times even suicidal. She said, I was in total denial of why I was doing what I was doing, but I just really was honestly searching for love. Isn't that how it begins? Everybody's searching for love, oftentimes in all the wrong places. One night at her lowest point, Annie decided to end it all. By now, she was a raging cocaine addict. She knew where to score drugs, so she decided the best way to end her misery was to overdose. So she checked into a cheap motel. She took a massive hit of cocaine and remembers blacking out. Laying on a dirty bathroom floor, she woke up periodically in a drug-induced stupor, crying out to God, saying, Jesus, if you're there, Jesus, if you're real, I don't want to die this way. At some point in her desperate fits of crying out, somebody heard her. They called the ambulance. The only thing Annie remembers next was waking up several days later in the hospital wondering, how she was still 
alive. I promise to tell you at the end of the message what happened to Annie. But I think that her brokenness and her shame and her disgrace paralleled that of another woman who we find here in John chapter 8 at the feet of Jesus. We don't know her name. The Bible doesn't ever tell us, but she could have been a character in Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic book, The Scarlet Letter. She could have been Hester Prynne because this woman in John 8 wore a capital A on her breast. Her sin was public. It was well known. She was the talk of the town. She was a bad girl. Her sin was adultery. I love the way that one author vividly imagines the scene. Picture this in your mind. In an instant, she is dragged from a private passion into a public spectacle. Heads poke out of windows as the posse pushes her down through the streets. Dogs bark. Neighbors rub her neck. Clutching a thin robe around her shoulders, she tries to hide her nakedness. But nothing can hide her shame. From this second on, she will be remembered as an adulterer. And when she goes to the market, women will whisper behind her back. Moral failure has an easy recall. The dust billows as she is cast before Jesus like a piece of garbage. Angry men encircle her. Hot tears begin to drip down her face into the dirt. Her sweaty hair dangles from her head. And she looks up and sees stones in their hands squeezed tight with fingerprints that have turned white. What a scene. And they say the Bible is boring. <laughs> They've never read it. And friend, as we read this passage here in John chapter 8, we see that justice called, but mercy answered. And what follows in the text is one of the most amazing instances of grace in the Bible. The way that Jesus tenderly but firmly deals with the Pharisees' self-righteousness and this woman's immorality teaches us an unforgettable lesson about the nature of amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And in the presence of Jesus, what we find out here today is that our case is dismissed and the verdict is pronounced not guilty. What do we learn about grace from this passage? Well, I want you to see, number one, is this, that God's grace silences accusation. God's grace silences accusation. Now, as I read this text, there are two details that immediately jump out. First is the story that Jesus is told. Now, you don't have to be a detective to realize that something is very corrupt with this kangaroo court. It doesn't add up as they encircle this woman there in the dusty streets. After all, if I remember correctly, it does take two to tango, doesn't it? And if this woman is caught red-handed in the act of adultery, then there has to be another guilty party, but he is nowhere to be found. Moreover, the Pharisees, uh, they must have been peeping toms because how else could you just randomly walk up on a couple in the middle of an affair? What I'm getting at, friends, is that this whole thing seems to be a setup. 
right? And that suspicion is confirmed by John's editorial comment that we read about here in verse 6. Let's refresh our minds. This they said to, watch this, test him. That they might have some charge to bring against him. Notice here that the Bible says the Pharisees came to test Jesus. What a stupid thing to do. <laughs> right? And thus the second detail that we see here, not just the story, but I want you to see the snare. This is a loaded question as they ask Jesus. They say that the law of Moses says an adulterer should be put to death, but what do you say? A story and a snare. Now notice here they're trying to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If Jesus says stone her then he would have contradicted his reputation to be a friend of the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. But he would have also contradicted the Roman law, which did not permit the Jews to carry out their own executions. And then, on the other hand, if Jesus says, don't stone her, then as the text pointed out, he would have been in violation of the law of Moses, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, which spelled out very clearly in the Old Testament that an adulterer should receive the death penalty. And so they're trying to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Of course, how many of you have lived long enough now to know that, friend, you can't put God in a box? Amen. <laughs> The creature is not smarter than the creator. They're playing checkers. Jesus is playing chess and he's ten steps ahead of them. Notice that Jesus doesn't even give dignity to their question. He doesn't even answer it directly. But the Bible says he stoops, takes his finger, and he begins to write in the dirt. Now what did he write? Oh, there are volumes of commentaries and the writings of theologians that have tried to figure that out. Friend, we must not go beyond what the Bible says. We don't know. But whatever it was, I believe that what Jesus wrote in the dirt was so incriminating that it was enough to bring conviction to the hearts of these would-be executioners such that they dropped their stones and walked away. And what I see here today is here's my first lesson about grace. Grace silences accusation. Amen. And that is the grace of God forces you to drop the stones that you might be casting at other people because your sin looks different than their sin. You see, whatever Jesus wrote in the sand, it was enough to convict these men of their own sin and realize Wait a second, we're just as guilty as this woman and therefore we must drop our stones and save face and Jesus had caught them red-handed, amen? You see, pride causes us to be judgmental. Pride causes us to look down upon other people and think that they're less than. Pride is what causes us to be hypocritical and pharisaical and pride is what causes us in the church to pick up the stone and as it has been said before in the church we have the reputation of being a group that doesn't help its wounded but we shoot our wounded. God help us to understand the amazing grace of God 
and what it costs to save you and me and that I'm a wretch and that I'm broken and that if I got what I really deserved, I'd split hell wide open and there'd be no hope for Derek McCarson. But Jesus stepped in one day and in the middle of accusation as people were saying thus and so about me, yes, it was all true, but in the face of grace, oh, the accusation stops. Somebody say amen in the house of God today. You say it takes the same grace to save the lowest sinner as it does to save the most righteous Pharisee on his high horse. And let us get that lesson sunk deep within our hearts today. Let Liberty Baptist Church be a place of grace. You let the broken come in here. You let them come in here messed up and still on drugs and with all their problems at home and at work. You let them come in here depressed. You let them come in here in chains and in darkness. And Jesus will do the rest. You see, I'm one of those old-fashioned preachers that still believes in the power of grace. I still believe the book. I still think that there's mercy and grace for a whosoever will. So let the accusations come. But when they meet Jesus, oh, they stop there at His feet. You see, grace silences all the accusations. Everything that they said about her, oh, it was true. But God. I was reading this week from Randy Alcorn. He tells a story in one of his books about a serial killer named Wesley Allen Dodd. 1989, he murdered three boys in Vancouver, Washington. Dodd was scheduled to be executed on January the 4th, 1993. Listen what happened. Before dinner that evening, his family watched the news, the broadcast about the execution, and Randy Alcorn's two daughters were 11 and 13. At the time, one of the daughters spoke up and said, Daddy, maybe we ought to pray for that man. We should pray that Jesus would save him. Randy Alcorn said, I agreed with their prayer, but only because I knew I should. Sometimes it's hard to show grace, isn't it? This is coming from a preacher. Listen to what he wrote. He said, that night I stayed up and watched... Reporters from all over the nation surrounded that prison. Thirty minutes after Dodd had been put to death, the news began reporting his final statement in which the killer said this, I thought there was no hope and no peace. I was wrong. But I have found grace and peace in Jesus Christ. Gasps and groans erupted from the gallery. The anger, he said, was palpable. How dare someone who had done something so terrible say he had found hope and peace in Jesus? Alcorn admitted, he said, quote, The idea of God offering grace to Dodd was utterly offensive to me at first. I struggled with the idea of God saving Wesley Allen Dodd only because I thought too much of myself and too little of my Lord. But then he said, God reminded me, His grace isn't just for good religious people unless we come to grips with the fact that we have precisely the same stock within us, sinful, fallen humanity as Dodd, as Hitler, as Stalin. We'll never appreciate Christ's grace until we see ourselves for who we really are. 
He said this, if God isn't big enough to save Dodd and Dahmer, He's not big enough to save me. The first thing that grace does when it steps into your life is it silences all accusation. Praise God for that. And it teaches us that we ought to be more gracious with people because that's somebody that Jesus died for. And were it not for Jesus, where would we be? Grace silences accusation. Then I want you to see this number two today. Grace saves from condemnation. God's grace saves from condemnation. You see, friend, what we need to realize today, nobody is so good they don't need grace, and nobody is so bad they can't receive grace. And if you go back now here into... John's Gospel, if you could go back a few chapters all the way to chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus makes a bold claim to the Pharisees whom he's talking to in this passage. He told the Pharisees back then, he said, Look, if you search the Scriptures, but in them you think you have eternal life, yet those Scriptures are that which testify of me. The Pharisees were the self-appointed experts of the law, and yet if they really understood their Old Testament, they would see that it was God's Son. It was the Messiah. The fulfillment of everything they had read and studied was there in their midst. But there's something deeper going on here in the story than just amazing grace. You see, as I mentioned, on the day that they brought the adulterer to Jesus, remember the Bible says they were going to test him. They were testing him in the law, trying to trip him up into some kind of contradiction. As I said, how foolish is that? The one who wrote the law and was the fulfillment of it is standing there in their midst, and yet they challenged to match wits with him. But the Bible says something interesting, that Jesus stooped down, he wrote in the dirt, and then in a few verses later, Notice what it says again, verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground again. Not once, but twice. Praise God for rabbit trails. I saw that in my Bible as I studied, and God sent me down a divine little rabbit trail, and I started searching that out, and I thought, now why is it twice? I've studied this passage a hundred times, Lord. This is the first time I've ever seen it like that. God ever do that to you? You think you know the Scriptures and then the Holy Spirit shows up and teaches you something you really blows your hair back? <laughs> something they don't teach you in Bible college and seminary? So to remind the Pharisees who they were dealing with, Jesus writes in the sand and He does something there that anybody who is steeped in the Old Testament would have understood. You see, when you go back in your Old Testament to the original scene... Where God, with His finger, writes something in stone. You have to go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Do you remember that? You Bible students out there, you Sunday school teachers. Let me connect the dots for you between what happened in the book of Exodus and what's happening here in John chapter 8. And I think once you see this, you'll see something amazing. You see, because if we go back into the book of Exodus there, as Moses goes on to the top of Mount, the children of Israel there are waiting for him at the foot. He's going up on the mountain to receive the law, God's Ten Commandments. 
And you know what it says there in Exodus 19? It says that twice God descended upon Mount Sinai to write the law on tablets of stone with His finger. The first time, Moses threw them down. So God had to write them again. Twice God writes in the rock His Ten Commandments. Twice Jesus stoops into the dirt with His finger and writes. Oh, when I saw that, my wheels started turning. Look what else happened. You know that when Moses received the law, there was something shady going down at the foot of the mountain. In fact, the people had built an idol called the golden calf. And God said, they're committing spiritual adultery against me. Go down and see what's happening. And yet here in John chapter 8, we have a woman who is caught in the act of adultery, brought there to the feet of Jesus as he stoops to write in the dirt. Oh, but then it gets even deeper. The Bible says that God it was in His jealous wrath and He promised judgment upon Israel. That's what they should have deserved. That's what they should have got. And here you have the Pharisees now standing over this woman picking up stones, promising judgment and death upon her. And yet there was an intercessor. There was somebody who stood up for the needs of the people. An intercessory between man and God and His name was Moses in the book of Exodus and because of Moses, God relents from His judgment and gives them mercy. And yet here we have an intercessor. He's not just a man. He's the God-man. He's the one who would die between heaven and earth, who would reconcile two estranged parties lost in sin and holy in purity. And Jesus is that mediator. Here in John chapter 8, as they call out for guilty, as they call out for condemnation, Jesus reaches and writes and He gives this woman grace. And so instead of judgment, what they get in the book of Exodus is mercy. They get a second chance. They get a do-over. They get something called G-R-A-C-E. That's God's riches at Christ's expense. And instead of death, this woman gets up and Jesus says, where's your accusers? Go out now and sin no more. Friend, that sounds like grace to me. That sounds like a second chance God. That sounds like a God who says it don't matter what your past looks like. It don't matter how black your sin ledger is. It don't matter how messed up your past might be. There's enough grace in the storehouse of heaven to take care of your account and my account and a whosoever will would come to the feet of this gracious God. You see what's happening here, friend? Jesus is acting out the scene from Mount Sinai right there in the dusty streets of Jerusalem. In front of the Pharisees, in effect, what he's saying to them through the symbolism of this passage is, I am the same God who wrote and gave you the law, and I am the same God who gave your ancestors mercy, and I'm the same one who's giving mercy and grace to this least deserving. Listen to what John 1 and verse 17 says. For the law was given through Moses... But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law condemned Israel just as it did the woman and the Pharisees. And yet because of an intercessor, both Israel and the woman received mercy. Jesus would go on to the cross from this point. He would die for this adulterous woman. And He would die for the proud, arrogant, self-righteous Pharisees like Nicodemus. Like the good church-going folk. Like 
the drunk who can't even hold his head up or the junkie looking for that next hit. That's grace. And you know what? Praise God today. Grace ain't fair. It never has been and it never will be. Somebody say amen in the house of God for a God of grace. A God who doesn't give you what you deserve, but a God who will give you what you can earn and you don't deserve. Oh my God. If you've been touched by amazing grace, I never want to get over God's grace in my life. Because I know who I used to be. I know how I used to think. How I, what I should be getting right now is hell and judgment and death and all the punishment that a sinner should receive. But today I'm standing before you preaching the grace and the glory of my Jesus. That's grace, friends. Oh my. Josh McDowell tells this great story. Happened in California a few years ago. He said there was a young lady who was pulled over for a traffic violation. Officer said, let me see your driver's license. Let me see your registration. She was going really fast. He said, I'm going to have to give you a ticket, ma'am. And because you were going so fast, he said, you're going to have to appear in court. And depending on who your judge is, you may lose your license or even worse. Well, she tried her best to keep this a secret from her parents. The day for the court case came. She arrived there. The officer was there. The evidence was presented. The judge looked at the young girl and said, How do you plead? Guilty. And then Josh McDowell said something amazing happened. The girl started crying because she knew that the debt was too much. She knew that there was no way she could pay. And yes, even in godless California, there's still a glimmer of God's grace. Josh McDowell said that at that moment, something divine, something beyond even the law of the land happened. He said at that moment, the judge stood up from his bench, took off his robe, walked down to where the girl was, opened up his wallet, pulled out the money, and paid the fine. And there's another piece of the story Josh McDowell said, oh, you need to know that the judge was her daddy. Glory to God. You see, that's what happens in the courtroom of God's divine grace. The accuser stands there. How do you plead? Oh, I'm guilty, lost, hopeless, uh, uh, condemned to die. And we have a divine defense attorney who steps forward. His name is Jesus Christ. And he steps in. The blood has been applied. He took our punishment. He took our place. 
And Romans 8, 1 says, Now there is therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And friend, the case can be settled out of court. I can't get over the blood that I'm under. Somebody say praise His name in the house of God here today. The fine was paid. The accusation was thrown out. The court case doesn't stick on my name anymore because I had one who was greater than me who was sinless and pure and spotless. And he went and did what I could not do in taking my place and paying my fine. You see, the greatest news that we can declare to the world is that the case that is against you and me can be dismissed. And the verdict can be forgiven. I say it all the time. But do we believe it? The church is... No perfect people allowed. Just forgiven people. Amen. What does grace teach us from this story? Number one, it shows us God's grace saves from condemnation. God's grace silences accusation. You have the choice of whether Christ will be your judge or your Savior. Repent and trust in Him if you have yet to do that. He's already paid the fine. The third thing I want you to see here today, God's grace sends us in restoration. It silences accusation. It saves from condemnation. It sends us in restoration. Look at this. When they heard it, verse 9, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus has left, was left alone with the woman standing before Him, and Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Notice this. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In Jesus' final words to this woman, we find grace and truth. Neither do I condemn you. That's grace. And then truth. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't condemn her as a sinner, but He didn't condone her sin either. And that's the message that our culture needs to hear today where they're wanting to change the labels and change what everything has been for the past 5,000 years between one man and one woman, between immorality and purity. Our culture needs to hear that, hey, my God hasn't changed. The definitions are still the same. It's, it's not what the culture says. It's about what God says. And there is still grace and there's still mercy. And you show them that Yes, there's consequences. Yes, there's truth. Yes, there's wrath and judgment. But it don't have to be that way because God is standing there saying, I want to give you a second chance. I want to give you peace and grace. You see, God doesn't just wink at our sin. He doesn't just brush it under the rug. Redeeming grace calls us to repentance and transformation. Jesus loves you the way that you are, yes, but He refuses to leave you that way. And based on the grace we have received, He expects us to be different. Amen? Listen to this. Grace doesn't free us to sin. Grace frees us from sin. Grace is not just a pardon and a permission slip to sin, but it's the power to finally resist sin. 
Grace is not the absence of God's high and holy standards. It's the presence of God's Holy Spirit now to finally live up to them. Amen? That's what grace does. When grace comes into your life and the Holy Spirit takes up a boatship in your heart, all of a sudden He changes your thinking patterns. He changes your heart's desire. You don't love the things you used to love. You don't run with the crowd you used to run with. All of a sudden you find there's something in the Word of God for me. All of a sudden the people that I thought were a bunch of hypocrites down there at the Baptist church, I figured out they're pretty good people and I'd like to worship with them. And that preacher that I got angry at that I thought was reading my mail, he's full of grace. He's telling me the truth. He does love my soul. That's what grace will do. It'll change your heart around and you get things right and you get a second chance. Amen. Oh, praise God for a second chance. He told this woman, he said, get up and dust yourself off. Go live differently. Don't you think she had a story to tell when she left that place? You talk about a resurrection. She came there condemned. She came there ready for death. But she left with new life. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the message that we have to give our culture today. That having a surgery and changing your sexual orientation isn't going to fix your problems. That another stimulus check from the government isn't going to fix your problems. That electing another politician is not going to suddenly regime change and make everything perfect in rainbows and, and, and butterflies in our society. We need the grace of God. We need a heaven-sent revival. We need preachers who'll talk about sin and judgment and wrath, but also who'll hold up high the cross of Jesus Christ and say, here's the answer, here's the hope, here's the love, here's the transformation that you're looking for. It's in Christ, in Christ alone. I came to Him broken. I came to Him needy. I came to Him sick and in death. And He sent me away with a message to preach and a gospel to proclaim and a Holy Spirit to drive me and a Word of God to feed me and a church family who love me and support me. Oh, that's God's riches at Christ's expense. He gave it all for a wretch, for somebody miserable, somebody hell-bound, somebody broken. He gave it all for me that I could have everything. Oh, my God. I hate this microphone. I have stumbled and tripped all over myself today. But when I start preaching about grace, I can't stay still. I can't be calm about it. I can't not sweat and spit and stutter. Why? Because I'm a trophy of grace. I know who I am and I know what I've been saved from. So don't ask me to shut up and sit down and be quiet and just stay behind stained glass. I can't be that kind of person. I've been redeemed from the very pit of hell. Yeah. Remember Annie Lobert? She lived that life of prostitution and drug overdose. Here's what happened to her. As she drifted in and out of consciousness, she remembered calling out to Jesus. As she recovered in the hospital, Annie remembered the television being on one day. The channel was tuned to a preacher who was speaking about God's unconditional love. For the first time, Annie heard the promise of John 3.16. 
She climbed out of bed, got down on her knees. She says, I was in tears. God, if you can save a prostitute like me. God, I can't believe that you would love somebody like me. But if you can, will you save me? And he gave her life to Jesus Christ. God's amazing grace and strength came into her life. She repented of her sinful past. She started attending church. She grew up in her faith. And she realized that God had given her a ministry so that she could reach women in the sex industry. And in 2006, she began a street ministry called, listen to this, Hookers for Jesus. It's in Las Vegas, and her ministry now reaches out to men and women in the sex industry nationwide and around the world. Friend, that's what our culture needs to hear today, where we're so broken and so confused. We can't even answer the question, what's a man and what's a woman? We need the grace of God to open our eyes to the truth that He's enough. Amen?